recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. This is The Poetry Project. Katie Brewer Ball has a fisherman's net around performance art, catching its sweat if sweat were up for grabs. She has a navigator mind. You like that line? Okay, thanks. Um, (laughs) She has a navigator mind that's gravitating in good limbo between the poles of cultural production and its riffing and theorizing. Between the wariness of what gets ironed out in mainstream representation of lesbians when their representations are often rendered invisible or deceivingly predictable, Katie seems to re-wrinkle the costume or reverse the steamer's flattening. She asks about when a crisp, clean thing in the mainstream might even feel good, if what might have been the most interesting thing was chopped off, perhaps the origin of what Katie calls homo wounds. Don't fall for the mainstream representation as any healing ointments. It's just a cover-up. What we need amidst the pall of conformity, the press release, the obvious, is a U-turn into the glory hole with Katia's guide that could be endless, and that's the point. If one is brave enough to get into the present with the social group or the question, how did I end up exactly where I am, What did the margin notes say? Was it ballpoint pen chewed on at the end or some inky blot or a waft of graphite? What email in good faith was sent, and is it a real social group? Is it my social group? How to take up space is an analysis of Katie's landscape. It includes what happens in the bathroom, I guess. It's the fangirl confession of the glory hole as magic portal, and the writing, the only ointment to blur the mismatching landscapes. Having the experience of really getting Lori Week's zipper mouth after reading Katie's review of it, where she explains the narrator is so intimate that we never know her name, and that if her name were interjected into the text, it would have been like, quote, being introduced to your lover at a dinner party. That's how close the subjects of Katie's writing seemed to her, how closely thought about they entered an intimacy with the writer and are spit back out for us to lick. I think what's the opposite of influence or the line between subject and writer who's got some mission, who's got some coinage moving towards or away from overwhelming an argument. How certain curators or critics or theorists have this real edge in their work I guess it's like the envelope opener of their writing over time is doing something different than we might expect, like sneaking some other currency in where you might not think it's there. This is beyond a justification of our laborers as creative. It's deeper than that. It's subliminal messages turned cumulative. Please help me in welcoming Katie Brewer Ball. Thank you so much for all of that, um, Ariel, and thank you for having me. Um, I didn't know that I did all those things, but I, I'm excited to find out. And um, thank you so much, Lara, for um, everything. I um, Hopefully there will be a lot of resonances with what I'm going to read. I'm going to read two different pieces and think about survival a lot, too, um, and violence, um, and think about which bodies do survive and what we do with those bodies. How do I look? Um, all right. So this um, 
first shorter piece that I'm going to read is called A Piece for Frame, and it's about um, the 1998 film High Art by Lisa Cholodenko, directed by Lisa Cholodenko. <laughs> um, does it start with the receptionist? Yes, I think it does. It begins with the receptionist and Rada Mitchell, who plays Sid, having a conversation about semiotics and what an assistant photo editor like does. What prepared you to do this job? No. What did you have to do to get your job? The receptionist asks. She has long red hair, bright red purple, and it looks like a member of and looks like a member of Delight. It was the late nineties. What did I have to do to get my job? Sid repeats slowly with a, with attitude. Then the red haired receptionist says sorry, because she didn't mean for it to come off like that, exactly. No, like what did you have to study? Does Sid say American studies, cultural studies, or critical theory? She's leaning on the receptionist's desk with her hand, her elbow, and a fax or a pile of mail under her arm. No, it's like really interesting. You'd probably really like it. Her face softens. You know, Derrida, Kristeva, whatever. The French post-structuralists rhyme here in Mitchell's American-Australian accent. That sounds cerebral. The receptionist backs off only just slightly. Like when you say theory, when you say what you do and it's a boner kill, when you're an academic and explain what you spend your time on, like at a barbecue, at an art show, and then Kristeva rhymes with whatever. I heard that Ali Sheedy, the tortured butch photographer lead, was sleeping with Lisa Cholodenko, the film's director. My ex's ex told me this. These extra hours of scene study seem to have helped Sheedy's performance, which is otherwise stilted, made for TV. But in front of the camera, Sheedy exudes sex. She has it all over her. It's like she's actually high from it, those chemicals changing the way she holds her body, looks into the lens through Mitchell as a decoy. Toward the end of the film, at the site of upstate consummation, the two lay in bed in summer. They're going to have sex, but it's awkward. And Sid is, Sid is shy and so gay for Lucy. It's hot in here, Sid says. No, you're hot, Lucy, Sheedy replies. As she sort of smashes her hand up under Sid's shirt, flat against her left boob. Sheedy isn't a good actor, but as heroine-chic Lucy Berliner, she pulls something off here. And Sid, the youthful art world art worker, kind of seduces her, naive and direct, confused and waiting with big eyes. Look at me, don't look at me. Until she becomes Lucy's photo magazine cover. I first saw high art in Cambridge, Massachusetts with my mom. <laughs> she had stumbled onto the new queer cinema of the 90s, so as a teenager we watched a lot of it together in the theaters that orbited Harvard Square. But High Art was the first film I saw where I saw some promise, some non-Stephen Gordon lesbianism that I could project myself into. At that point in my career, it was 1998, so I had already had sex with Liz, the bisexual raver. But High Art gave my teenage eye a world that I have, however unconsciously, attempted to emulate, from queer art world visual eros to Derrida, Kristeva, whatever. In the end of the film, Lucy overdoses, the editors float by Sid in the office. They thank her for fucking Lucy, for posing in the photographs fucked by Lucy. The name of their photo magazine is Frame. And Sid stands in the office, staring at the receptionist, mute with loss. There's nothing subtle about this, but there's something that Chilodenko crashes into around queer representation that I get cut off on. 
To imagine queer worlds is also sometimes to kill them through what Foucault calls the trap of visibility. The utopian promise of queer cutting, queer sex, intersects with capital, in effect trapping the filmic subjects in a pose that circulates amongst a few as memento, and then, am and then among many as a freeze frame. But I keep coming back to the post-structuralist rhyme, the bad acting, and the supersaturation of high art. Even if, Bart's, even if Bart's eidos of the photograph kills you, kills me, a little along the way, it's worth it to track a piece for frame, a piece for the frame, to keep playing it, to keep playing it out. Um, and then this piece is called Starting a Fire to Burn a Witch or a Contemporary of Sigmund Freud. Um, okay. We stop being ourselves and transform ourselves into someone else's image of us. This happens automatically. I live in Connecticut now, a fact I refuse to admit. <laughs> I live in Connecticut at the moment, as in just right now, and on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> the ghosts of industry have long since pulled out of this town, Middletown and a small liberal arts college sits atop the hill. The people on Main Street don't seem, to, don't seem to know the school is there. From the mound on top of the hill, Foss Hill maybe it's called, the one with the planetarium, you can see a long brick state hospital across the valley on the other side of the Connecticut River. On my job interview, one professor walked me around the grounds and pointed it out. I can't remember if he said it had been closed or not, but the town feels like a dumping ground, the unlatched safety net funneled onto this small street. The place I live in Connecticut is haunted, or maybe I should just say it's poor. In the winter, the snow sits there in piles, banks on banks on banks. Last February, I put a sleep mask on and cried myself to sleep every night for a week, a well of loneliness, a melancholy dyke. One of my white students told us in class that she loves Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies, but as a kid, her mother would just fast forward through the blackface scenes because they are awkward. I think she said. When she said awkward, she meant that they made her feel uncomfortable. She meant that they were racist, where awkward covers over not wanting to confront white complicity, liberalism, supremacy, through the rushed speed of the fast forward button. I often want to just pause on those moments with students to make them sit in it, because not everyone just gets to, not everyone gets to just hit the fast forward button and just skip that scene that reminds them of the violence of whiteness. In Connecticut, my main interaction is with my students, and God, I never really understood the interest in pedagogy until I did it, like did it all the time as an all-the-time job. It reminds me of therapy only in reverse, because it's not like therapy at all. In teaching, you become the daddy, have to start being the daddy. My gay male friends tell me that when men reach a certain age, like 30, they graduate to daddy, and that's how a daddy is born. Before 30, you can be the boy, but when you hit 30, there's a changing of the guard. <laughs> but I don't actually want to talk about my students here, a confusion of tongues, because what I want to talk about is survival, the who or the how of survival, a dance of incoherency, but not everything remembered is useful. A contemporary of Sigmund Freud, Sandra Ferenzi was a psychoanalyst. Ferenzi looked up to Freud for guidance and validation 
The two did a lot of boundary play, mommy-baby play. Frenzy was the wise baby, the baby who knew about sex before repression set in, the baby with pre-linguistic knowledge. In 1932, Frenzy delivered a paper at the 12th International Psychoanalytic Congress in Weisbaden called The Passion of Adults and Their Influence on the Sexual and Character Development of Children. The paper would go on to be published a year later under the name Confusion of Tongues Between the Adults and the Child, the Language of Tenderness and Passion. Here, Ferenzi outlines the psychological reasons for what he calls identification with the aggressor. Identification with the aggressor is what happens when one feels trapped, when you cannot find a way out. Escape becomes impossible, and so the self disappears into the intrapsychic realm through the interjection of the aggressor. The aggressor is thrown inside of the self, of the you. Jay Frankel explains Frenzy's theories saying, like chameleons, we blend into a world around us, into the very thing that threatens us in order to protect ourselves. We stop being ourselves and transform ourselves into someone else's image of us. This happens automatically. Identification, of the aggressor, identification with the aggressor in these terms is not part of an escape fable or grand captivity narrative, but instead part of everyday negotiations of power and caught up in questions of visual, visual representation. It is described as seeing, as another person's image of you that comes to stand in for your own self-image. The trickiest part is that we don't even know we are doing it, and maybe we do it every day. Ferenczi's article is considered an attempt to manage traumatic confusion. He describes the relationship between trauma and unconscious fantasy. The child, both the receiver of praise and abuse, doesn't know which is which, and so she becomes what the attacker, what the perpetrator, what the adult expects of her. She needs love and protection, and the adult, the bank robber, makes use of this power differential. Maybe I'm not being very clear here. Once, I kicked Danielle in the ankle because she was calling Nora horseface. We were at fifth grade science camp somewhere in the woods outside of Boston, probably west. Danielle got to take a Tylenol and wash it down with ice cream. I sat there with her and was made to apologize, lest I be sent home early. I was 10. Once I chased Eileen up a tree in the schoolyard. A few years later in seventh grade, I told everyone that her father sexually abused her. I think the actual utterance was, well, at least my father doesn't touch me in the shower. We weren't really friends, our brothers were, but she was around enough that I was consistently annoyed by her presence, even in school. Then one day in woodworking class, we fought because my dog had killed the gerbil offspring of her gerbil. I had spent a good part of the previous evening alone in my house crying for this little baby beast and yelling at Sherman, my dog, that he was wrong, that he was such a bad boy. My baby dog killed another baby's baby. <laughs> so the next day at school, when Eileen got angry with me for this gerbil, what was the death of my gerbil, I yelled that thing about her dad. The principal took me to his office and explained what libel was, how I could be taken to court and accused of libel. The law might get, in, the law might get involved if I weren't a little more careful with my language, with my hate speech. My mom told me that, that Eileen's father took showers with her, that it was creepy. It sounded creepy. I didn't know what to do with that. I could picture this smiling, bald white man climbing into the tub with her. 
A month or so later, someone called the Department of Social Services on us, on my mom, I guess, claiming child neglect. My mom told us that it was my dad that had filed the report. At that point, my parents had been, been divorced for something like six years, and my dad said it was Eileen's mom who had accused us. It felt like that, like we had been accused of child neglect, like we had all fallen down on the job of self-care. The day that the social worker came, my mom cleaned the whole apartment, and then we sat on the couch eating Entenmann's donuts, the chocolate cake crumble kind. As a kid, it was hard for me to understand that, the, that aggression would be met with aggression, that in each instance I would be given back an image of myself as violence. Always I was angry and righteous, the sick soft texture of smooth peanut butter on a spoon. When you licked the jiffy off, it would leave these ridges, lines where your tongue had been. What, smelt, what felt smooth to your tongue left these shallow cuts in the hollowed out peanut butter remaining on the spoon. The normative violence of silence and scarcity felt even, unexamined, the pretend plastic food that passes as peanut butter. I hate the word nice, I still do. Fuck nice. Fuck the cultural violence of nice. I don't think that I was a bad or evil kid, but I was in pain, scared, whatever. And this seemed like the way people dealt with hurt. Maybe it was the working class Belmont Watertown line that pushed up against Mitt, the Mitt Romney estate on Belmont Hill. Backyards full of dog shit so that you couldn't play there. And then finally in eighth grade, solo bus rides to Harvard Square, to the pit, to the coop and the commons. Boston felt charged and scary a lot of the time, but it all went unnamed. The money of the white liberals clashed silently against the intense racial segregation and the black students who had to spend an hour on the bus every day from Dorchester each, each way. And I guess that was maybe the point, the point of structural administrative violence, that it uses a silencer so you don't hear the repetition of shots like the time Avo and I were walking home from a high school party after drama fest, and someone came up behind him and stabbed him in the back with a knife. These are the things that go unnamed, but scratch, scab, and don't heal. Later that same year, Eileen's gerbil's gerbil child died, 1992. I would spit gum in Vanessa's face and get beat up by her friends. I don't think either of us wanted to get into a fight, but everyone around us was pushing for it, upping the stakes. Boston is like that. To get out of the circle with the kids yelling, she's statin' with you, tugging on me, pointedly jamming these two fingers into my shoulders. I don't know if you guys remember, like that was a thing. Um, jamming these two fingers into my shoulders, I had to let go of my backpack. I ran the rest of the way home. That year we lived on Drew Road, not far from the middle school, down near the projects in a brown two-family house with a downstairs neighbor, a German one, who my mom was in, in a constant power struggle with over who would shovel the driveway. You are doing it wrong, Linda. That was my mom's impression of him. So she just, sho she just stopped shoveling it at all. I must have called my mom crying when I got home. I vaguely remember that. I know she called the police on Vanessa. It was warm out, so it must have been the spring, like late April. My mom came immediately home from work and drove down the neighboring streets. She found Vanessa sitting against a fence or something, reading my diary, surrounded by her friends. In my mind, she was reading aloud my admissions of love for Hamill husbands. The crowd wasn't as big as it had been, but she wasn't alone. 
It wasn't particularly scandalous that Vanessa would read that. I mean, she knew I had a crush on Hamill. But it was embarrassing to love someone and also get beaten up. The other thing that happened that year, which I want to tell you about, is that Andrea tried to kill herself. She cut into her wrist and showed us. Maybe she was being dramatic, we thought. Vanessa and I thought. We were still best friends then, that February. We maybe even had those necklaces. No one was really ever home at Andrea's house. She was having a lot of sex and always telling us about it. There was some illusory boy from Medford. That winter we watched a lot of horror movies and read Stephen King novels. Scary movies seemed like a way to work through the terror, to just, let go, to just go right in, all dressed up like a reanimated dead cat, an evil clown, or a pumpkin head. For her birthday, Andrea's mom bought her a pink tracksuit from Dress Barn. I felt pretty sorry for her about that Dress Barn thing. The rest of the stuff we could handle. Starting a fire to burn a witch, a witch, a bitch, a faggot. That's what a little stick is for, for a witch. Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I've had a few scrapes and stuff, but they've washed them up and they're doing okay. Those are Patty Hearst's first words in the audio ransom notes sent out after her 1974 kidnapping by the Sindhianese Liberation Army. In those tapes, she sounds dazed. She sounds like a ventriloquist dummy. She doesn't make sense. She's, she's a confused little girl, only not just that. That reading is too easy, too cruel. There's so much space between her words. There's a lag, a pause, that breaks the semiotic chain. I've been thinking a lot about Patty Hearst, or rather I've been wondering why Hearst was so heavily faulted for not escaping the clutch of her captors. Instead of running away, she joined them, publicly pro pro proclaiming herself an urban guerrilla, confounding mommy and daddy and Richard Nixon and Capitol. She had Stockholm Syndrome, they said. She had been brainwashed, kept in a closet until she started thinking the bad guys were the good guys. But maybe they were the good guys. They were better guys than the Hearsts. I think we could agree on that. You know, she was the first member of the SLA that was prosecuted. Hearst sentenced to jail for the SLA Hibernia bank robbery before her captors were even tried. This is the scene that Frenzy describes, the confusion of tongues. It gets messy. It's a mess of trauma and pain, but there's also something to it. We stop being ourselves and transform ourselves into someone else's image of us. This happens automatically. Feeling the part, I think, allows us to play the required role flawlessly. I wonder about the texture of survival and the lives it demands or allows. Christ, the shit you have to go through in this world just to survive, Valerie Solanas said in an interview about her play, Up Your Ass. <laughs> Valerie used her typewriter and, as Avital Renal reminds us, the Remington was born in the same breath as the rifle, the same moment. Everybody knows that men have much more respect for women who are good at lapping up shit, Solanus wrote. What if Patty Hearst were not just a dummy, but something else? What if the way we used that story were different? I mean, I don't care about Patty so much as I care about her tongue, her linguistic fidelity or infidelity to certain narratives to the dyed yellow turds that Solanus threw at men. She stepped out of the way of the gun, 
that man was already aiming at himself, at his inevitable demise. Wounded and wounding, she came out shooting. The other part of the Vanessa story that I didn't tell you is that after our fight, the fight neither of us really wanted but got caught up in, Vanessa was sent to the technical high school. The next year, her parents didn't enroll her with the rest of us in eighth grade, and they didn't enroll her the following year either at the public high school half a mile away. Instead, she went to Minuteman Tech so that she could learn a skill. Her friends hated me for this, for the fight and her banishment. And I do remember the scene of the fight, the circle, edging in, being surrounded, Vanessa looking scared too. They dared us to do it. They wanted a scene of violence and we were compelled from inside or out to stage it. For a while after the fight, I was scared to walk through the halls, scared to sit in the lunchroom alone. I never saw Vanessa again after seventh grade, not even around town. Last week, some students sent out an email mirroring the snow closure emails that pile up in our February inboxes. Only this email wasn't about snow, it was about rage. I told them they have the power to change this place. I hope they can change this place. The students anonymously wrote, the university anticipates being open tomorrow, Thursday, February 12th, despite continuing to build upon a history of settler colonialism and rampant heterosexism. Faculty who are unable to hold their classes as scheduled should just thank their lucky stars that the university compensates them merely $6,000 per class and stop complaining. I think it's not even that much. Um, <clears throat> a living wage is only for those who are wholeheartedly invested in the capitalist system. The humanities, especially ethnic and feminist studies, are continuing to fail to meet the standards for productivity, so please get your act together. I laugh and relish in their juvenile fierce indictment of the university. My next thought is, will I get fired? Of course I'm convinced the students that wrote this are my students. So proud, are they listening? And I'm afraid the administration is somehow tracking my school email, so I take a screenshot of the note on my phone and send it to my professor best friend, what one student called my partner in crime, to ask if she's seen it. No, she's been in meetings all day. We both immediately claim these raucous anti-institutional students as our own. It sounds like so-and-so wrote this, we both say. But I also feel my precarity immediately, brittle as this Connecticut town, fighting a ghost called gender or genre. Should I be scared? I scroll through my fears and think, no. Fuck this violence. I don't want to be scared. Then I walk around my cardboard box, white-walled Connecticut kitchen, with a black and white checkered floor that never looks clean, saying, darling, I am going out in a blaze of glory. I'm going out in a blaze of glory, darling. I feel like Jack Fervor or Fred Herko. I feel fantastic and irreverent. I feel sick to my stomach. I'm not sure I know what I feel, which is why I'm writing it down here to you. It's that fine line between pleasure and pain and rage. And whether she wants it or not, I give it over to Patty Hearst. I tell her she has always held it. White-faced, I leave the room. No red. Red-faced, I leave the room. The heat on so high. That small apartment, a diorama like a tunnel. Little things are minimally installed, and there is a picture window at the end. Patty bounced from wall to wall, a frail triangle with red hair. She fell across the sides, feet in the middle, hands propping up the isosceles angles. It wasn't Patty, really, in the apartment. 
but it was also Patty, craving the tenderness and comfort desired by the ill, neglected, and suffering child. In her autobiography, Every Secret Thing, Hearst describes the the lesbian SLA member Camilla Hall as a lonely outcast who despised by Saint Q, the movement who was despised by Saint Q, the movement's leader. Hall, she said, joined the group simply to be close to her former lover, Patricia Ms. Moon. It would seem that there is not much written about Camilla Hall, who died with the other SLA members in an LA shootout with the police on May 17, 1974. Hearst writes, Poor Gabby. She was like the cheese that stands alone at the end of the children's game, the farmer in the dell. Nobody wanted her. She was in several ways pathetic. Towards the end of his life, Ferenzi would have his patients analyze him, or maybe just one woman in particular. Confusion of tongues. One becomes a baby with words, a baby who takes space, who takes up space, frustrating a developmental trajectory. A baby who finally gets to speak their words. Language shivers. Now Patty Hearst lives in Darien, Connecticut, where she laps up shit, little yellow turds. Sometimes I stop at the Whole Foods there in Darien when I drive between New York and New England. This week, Hearst's Shih Tzu, Rocket, won the title of Best Toy Dog at Westminster Kennel Club. And today, February 20th, 2015, is Patty Hearst's birthday. She is 61. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.